My name is Tim Challies, and you're listening to Reclamation Worship. I'm Jason Allen, host of Reclamation Worship, the podcast devoted to reclaiming a biblical view of worship for the church. As always, thank you so much for joining me for this episode of Reclamation Worship. Today's guest, as you just heard, is Tim Challies. Many of you are, I'm sure, familiar with his work. I will be linking to his website in the show notes. If you're not familiar, I'd love for you to go and check it out. It's got a lot of great articles I'm going to be linking to as well. Tim is a writer, and uh, we, in this episode, we discuss uh, an article that he wrote on corporate worship, uh, which I am sure you will appreciate. A very helpful article in thinking through uh, how we worship corporately, specifically uh, with respect to singing in the corporate worship service. We're also going to talk about suffering in worship, and we will conclude with a project that is soon to be released that Tim has been working on called Epic. All right, well, let's head on over to the interview. Tim, thank you so much for joining me on Reclamation Worship. It's my pleasure. All right, well, in the event that someone's listening who's not familiar with you and your ministry, why don't you take a few minutes and uh, share a little bit about yourself? Sure. I'm a writer by trade or a blogger by trade, if you will. I live in Toronto or just outside Toronto, Ontario, Canada. I've been here my whole life, even though my family defected to America. That's my <laughs> sisters, my brother, my parents. Um, I have three kids, one of whom is also defected to America for now at uh, Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, one who's finishing up high school this year, one who's finishing up primary school this year. And I'm married to Aileen and have been for 22 years. Wonderful. So I have a daughter at Boyce College, uh, and huh. so we, we've got that in common. Um, right. How did the Lord intervene in your life? Yeah, I had the privilege of growing up in a Christian home. So my parents had gotten saved shortly before they got married. They were college students at the time, got married young. Um, so I grew up in a Christian home. My parents, when they got saved, were well within the Pentecostal stream, but found that intellectually unfulfilling. And eventually, uh, through Francis Schaeffer, they bumped into him in Switzerland and uh, came across the Reformed faith and found that far more intellectually satisfying. And so I was raised... Uh, in the Reformed tradition, and uh, mostly Dutch Reformed with a little bit of uh, Presbyterian mixed in as well, and then later came around to uh, more consistent Baptist convictions. You know, I, along the way, of course, had to make that personal profession of faith. Don't want to leave anyone with the uh, thought that maybe I didn't do that, but um, no, my parents raised me to to uh, know the Lord and in his timing. I'm not exactly sure when it was, but I did trust in him. Amen. So uh, you, you said you've spent your entire life in Toronto? Yes. Okay. Yeah, basically. Close enough. Uh, close enough. Are you a Raptors yeah. fan by chance? I'm not. I'm not You're... a basketball fan. No, I've okay. got no use for the sport. <laughs> what, Blue Jays uh, fan, yes. We could talk that. Okay. Blue Jays. All right. Yeah. Good deal. Uh, so, Tim, if you don't mind sharing with my audience, how your blog came up about. I, I, that's how I uh, came to know you or know of you. Uh, yeah. And uh, you've been doing this for quite a while. So how did it, how did it come about? Sure. Yeah. Um, I guess it was shortly after my parents moved to the States. They moved down with my three sisters and brother around 99 or 2000 around then. 
That was sort of when blogs were happening and pre-social media. We need to try to remember a world before there was social media, Facebook mm. and the like. And uh, I really started the blog as a means of communicating with them. I had heard other people talking about blogs. And so I decided to start one and really started putting stuff there that was of interest to me. And I thought it might be of interest to them as well. And hence the chalice.com was really meant to be a kind of family site. Wow. Um, I started talking about things at the time I was in a, um, a Baptist church and it was a non-reformed Baptist church and I had this reformed upbringing and um, this was right at the kind of height of the church growth movement. And I was just trying to wrestle through some of the things I was seeing at our church uh, related to purpose-driven life and other things. And the blog really became my way of thinking out loud and in public. And lo and behold, lots of other people were thinking about the same things at the same time. And so other people started reading it and it just kind of grew up from there at, at sort of the beginning of this new Calvinism thing or whatever you want to call it. Yeah. Wow. So ha- have you seen a, uh, with, with the advent of uh, podcasting, the popularity, have you continued to see your blog grow or has it stabilized? What, what's the current trend there that you're seeing? Um, so I don't really actually look at statistics. I don't really care about them. <laughs> I, I think I, I jumped on the other day cause somebody asked me something, but I realized it had probably been a couple of years since I even looked and it didn't occur to me to compare past realities to present ones. So I honestly do not know. Mm, that's, that's cool. Well, what, uh, what are the things that, uh, shape the content that you provide in your blog because you you write but you also link to other articles so uh is there anything in particular that uh, that that drives the content of your site yeah i guess there's two things so there's the day-to-day what i call an a la carte feature which is uh content curation so i'm curating what other people have created articles videos and so on and that draws in some people and then there's the ongoing creation as well where i create my own articles so um in terms of the content creation, the things that I'm writing, usually that's just what I'm interested in on any given day. I sit down and write and just see what happens. So um, it might sometimes be external things, things that are happening in the Christian world or controversies or conflicts or uh, questions. But more commonly, it's just what I'm thinking about, how I'm processing life and uh, still doing that thinking out loud and in public kind of thing that blogs really were invented to do. How has pastoring shaped your writing? So whether for the blog mm-hmm. or for books? Yeah, I think being, becoming a pastor was hugely important in my, uh, in my development as a writer. Um, I should say that I was first an elder at my church, so non-vocational. And then for about five years or so was full-time associate pastor at my church and then subsequently went back to being a non-vocational elder at the church. And so uh, in a Baptist church, we can call all of that pastoring. We can call all of that eldering, and we'd be to figure out uh, if there's any distinction between them. But I think it really helped me grow in my appreciation for the struggles that people go through. It's very, very easy to look at people abstractly. But when you're pastoring and you're seeing what people are actually going through, what the the context in which people have emerged, the the difficulties people are struggling with, I think it really helps you grow in compassion. And I think writing is uh, can then be shaped by that. So um, when you're writing about difficulties, often you can think of someone in your own church, in your own life, who's gone through something like that. And it really does, I think, arouse a sympathy or compassion for others that may be lacking if you're 
more prone to just look at people abstractly. So of all of the titles that you've written, of, of the books that you've written, is there one area of your writing that uh, seems to be your sweet spot? I think what people, well, I, what I hear most often would be related to books and especially reviews of bad books. Um, so for a while, we had different waves of really terrible books happening in the Christian world. We yeah. had a lot of the church growth stuff, then we had the emerging church stuff, then we had the uh, heaven tourism genre, then we had uh, Jesus Calling, and uh, The Shack was mixed in there as well. And so for a while, there were these books that were making a really deep impression in the Christian world, and I uh, took some time and effort to respond to many of those books. Um, and then, of course, to do lots of positive book reviews along the way. So I hear a lot of uh, feedback about the book reviews for uh, the good books and the bad books. I'm probably known for that. Other than that, I think just writing personally, trying to write about the experience of one Christian who's, I think, a pretty normal person, pretty accessible person, and just kind of writing out my own experiences and the way I'm processing life. And then people can agree or disagree. They can, um, they might appreciate what I say. They might, uh, well, they might not. But either way, I think it gives people something to talk about, something to think about. So as your neighbors to the South the stereotype of, of Canadians is that you are all nice people and uh, that you're very kind and uh, lighthearted. So has that benefited you in writing these critiques of these bad books? Yeah, maybe so. I, I do think there's a, there's that typification of Canadians that we are just nice, whatever nice means. And I, <laughs> I don't think it's wrong. I think we are just generally a little bit deferential compared to Americans. We have our own view of Americans, which would be kind of the flip side of that, that Americans <laughs> are a little bit more bold and aggressive. And, you know, these are cultural stereotypes, but that doesn't mean they're not based in some kind of fact. And um, so, yeah, I think maybe that's that's uh, served me well, whether people just think he's Canadian, therefore they interpret things accordingly, or whether that's really just kind of the way I am, uh, came about it honestly. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I think that's I think that served me well. On the other hand, I've heard lots of people tell me I'm mean and cruel and mean spirited and all of that because I would dare to write about mm. a book oh, in wow. a negative way that they very much appreciate. So I've uh, I've gotten many many cruel and angry comments over the years, mm. uh, sometimes from readers, sometimes even from the people who've written those books. Mm. How have you been able to sort of disarm folks uh, in in helping them see? A truth and and not uh, take or hold the book so personally or whatever the uh, whether it's a book or, or movie or or you know maybe even an album that they're listening to um, is there is there some way that you've been able to approach folks uh, to sort of disarm that personal uh, feeling that they have for that work uh, you can sometimes do that but other times you simply can't and we do identify with our books in a way. If I say this book has influenced me and then you come along and say, well, that's a stupid book and it's unbiblical and here's why, mm. then yeah, to some degree, you're going to be going not just after the author or after the book, you're going to be going after me. Yeah. Um, so I think we have to be aware of that and not pretend it's otherwise. Mm. But I think there are certain things you can do, which is appreciate strengths where there are strengths uh, within a book, which there often are, even in books that aren't so good. Mm-hmm. Um, and also to just keep pointing to objective truth. So we're not grounding this in anything. Uh, I say I'm not the authority here, but we're grounding it in God's word. It's it's the authority. So if we keep pointing to that, we just got to trust God's word. You've got to trust the power, the strength, the authority of God's word Amen. and just keep pushing back to it. And if people don't like me, well, uh, I'm okay with that, but hopefully they can at least be convicted by the spirit working through the word. 
That's great. So speaking of the uh, articles that you write, there are a couple that I, I want to talk about. So uh, one that um, that I came across was why I didn't sing when I visited your church. And as, as <laughs> for those who listen to my uh, podcast with any regularity, they will know that I'm concerned about uh, corporate worship, but also worship uh, as life. And so this is sort of, this is certainly hitting on the corporate worship. So is there a story behind this article? There actually isn't so much. I, I don't think it came down to a particular church, but I was just trying to find ways of speaking about uh, music in church, worship music in church, the way we sing, mm-hmm. and trying to find a way of communicating uh, some of those same old truths in a slightly different way. So a little bit of a cheeky way, maybe. It's great. Yeah, I will definitely link to that uh, to that article. Uh, and I, I'm really um, calling on your memory here, but but were there a few things from that article that you will remember, a few critiques that uh, that you could highlight here on the spot. Again, I'm putting you on the spot. No problem. So the premise of the article is that um, I'm just saying why when I went to somebody's church, whoever that is, uh, I could not sing your songs. And uh, what I'm really trying to do is point people to um, some of the problems with the way we worship today, the way modern worship happens today. And so I said, um, I wasn't familiar with the songs. That's why I couldn't sing. These were new songs to me. Now every church has some of its own songs probably, or some that they've drawn from other sources that other churches don't sing. That's fine. But there's many churches that only sing their own songs or only sing the newest songs um, instead of falling back on the long history of Christian hymnody, for example. Mm -hmm. Or I didn't sing because the songs weren't congregational. There's a lot of music that's being sung today that's primarily performance music and uh, not made for congregational singing. Um, Or I couldn't hear the congregation sing. There's a lot of churches you go to today where, man, it looks like the people at the front are having a great time and worshiping the Lord, but everybody else just can't quite keep up. They're skilled singers up there. They're having a great time, but we're not skilled singers, and um, we're not able to, uh, to worship as well. They're not really leading us in worship. They're the ones who are worshiping, and we're just kind of watching. So I just tried to point out some of those things. Yeah, Mark Dever in Washington, D.C., pastor there at Capitol Hill Baptist Church, he talks about uh, the church's most important or influential instrument being the the voice of the congregation. And so mm-hmm. I'm with you that um, I want to hear the, the people uh, more than any instrument or voice uh, from the stage. So, um, yeah, I yeah. will. And uh, yeah, go ahead. Dever's voice there, his his perspective there clashes with some other Christian leaders who are saying, well, why don't you get non-Christian musicians in mm. uh, even? Go that far where they can lead worship because their skill in playing an instrument is so delightful to God, so worshipful mm. to God. I'd be of the exact opposite. I don't think God much cares for the instruments. He cares for our voices. So, of mm. course, God's glorified through, through good music played well, fine. But um, I don't think any of that replaces the human voice. The one thing that truly can express worship to God in a unique way, we can lift our voices together. So um, I really believe it's time for Christians, uh, Christian churches to take a hard look at how we worship and why we worship and um, focusing specifically on our songs, on our congregational music and ask what does God want for our singing? How can we best uh, raise our voices together to him. And I think we got a lot of worship. I'm grateful for what the Gettys are doing and others and just really trying to um, 
bring about what's hopefully a, a kind of a revival of hymnody. Mm. How, so in your church, uh, where you worship, where you belong and where you worship, uh, is, would you say that corporate singing is uh, cherished and, and uh, embraced? Yes, very much so. And uh, we're probably similar to Dever in a lot of ways in that I think one of the last positions we would fill is worship leader. We're not that interested in having someone committed specifically to that. We would rather um, sing not so professionally, but um, have our people able to sing. And so we're not putting a huge emphasis on that upfront worship leading as much as hopefully teaching and training our people to sing so they can uh, lift their voices together. So, um, yeah, I think if you came to our church, you'd see people who enjoy singing and hopefully can sing, and you'd probably be familiar with the great majority of the songs. And at the very least, they would almost all of them be very, very singable songs. Yeah, that's great. Yeah. Matt Merker, uh, was with Capitol Hill Baptist. Now he's with the Gettys. He, mm-hmm. uh, will write a lot about, um, hymnody and, and, uh, that's always high on his list is singability. So, uh, truth, yes. you know, make sure truth is there, but, but make sure it's simple melodies, uh, that, uh, that can be repeated by the congregation. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. So Tim, you have written a lot as well about uh, suffering, and um, mm-hmm. so I wanted to ask you uh, what it was uh, about that particular topic uh, that has so uh, uh, gotten your attention, and uh, wanted to see if um, if you could share maybe a little bit about your story there. Sure. Yes. Yeah. So. Um... Man, I've lived a a really good life free from much sorrow and suffering. Um, And then just over the last couple of years, I've been dealing with uh, a few things. The primary one is health issues uh, just related to my hands. My ability to type actually has been pretty compromised. And Mm -hmm. so what I love to do, which is writing, and what I do vocationally, which is writing, is now being pretty severely hampered by some medical issues. So, um, yeah, it's just been a a strange thing and something that's uh, caused me to to re-examine what I believe about suffering and just to, uh, I guess, dive deeper into uh, what I hope is a sound theology of suffering and uh, just to see how the Lord works even through our pain. Yeah, I think that is uh, sorely lacking in our churches today is a theology of suffering, thinking through pain, because often the first question is, why God me? And um, rather than than seeing a James approach to trials and, and suffering, um, we, we often see them as being only negative and uh, we mm-hmm. only see the, uh, the downside of, of suffering. So, um, so you've written pretty extensively about uh, suffering. What are some of the things uh, most recently that you've been thinking with respect to suffering and, uh, and having a theology of suffering? Yeah, I guess I've been, uh, I've been reflecting on, um, just trusting God through it and understanding that I don't need answers. Mm. Um, I think there's a lot of messaging out. There's a lot of people out there who, who seem very eager, able to interpret their suffering while they're suffering. God is doing this because, or God has given me this because. And I'm just not sure that maybe sometimes we, there's clear cause and effect, but more often I don't think there is. And so uh, we can cast about for answers, but more I think uh, our concern ought to be for just how we're doing in those moments, how we're doing 
through this this period, whether it's going to be months or years or or a lifetime. Mm-hmm. Um, and the Bible seems to offer us different reasons we suffer. Sometimes it may be something we've done, and God is somehow uh, bringing a consequence to our sin that's meant to steer us back to Himself. But the, the Bible says that uh, what son is there whom his father does not discipline? So. You know, it could be some sort of divine consequence or something, or it could just be a yucky consequence of living in a yucky, messy world. It could be that, or who knows? We just don't know. It could be satanic affliction. We we just don't know. So um, I don't know that we can always figure these things out. And so um, while I don't want to be fatalist about it, I also think sometimes we just endure it and uh, trust that God is at work in it one way or another. And that may be from an eternal perspective, we'll have a better sense of what that is. Mm-hmm. That's great. And in this most recent article that you've written, which I will link to, uh, you talk about maybe rather than plumbing the depths for answers, uh, turning the the lens on ourself and, and mm-hmm. searching our own heart and our own uh, motives to see if maybe there is some hidden sin or, or something. So could you talk a little bit about, about that? Yeah, so I think this is hard for us to hear, and we certainly cannot say. We've got to be very careful. We don't ever allow people to hear us saying, if you're suffering, it's because you've sinned. Right. Um, you can say, if you're suffering, it's because there is sin. The world is sinful. Therefore, there is suffering. If there was no sin in the world, there would be no suffering. Um, but we cannot say, your suffering is because you have sinned. It may be, though, and that's the tricky thing. It may be that your suffering is related to your sin. And so when you are going through a time of suffering, it really does seem to, to be the biblical uh, mandate then that you'd examine yourself that, and ask God to examine you and to point out to you, are there ways I'm sinning? And um, are there sins I need to confess or behaviors I need to stop put to death um, so that God will relieve me of this? Um, that, that's at least a very good first step. And there's biblical mandates about calling for the elders to anoint you with oil and pray for you, those sorts of things. But that seems to follow that time of self-examination that first you would, um, do real business with the Lord. Mm. Any other thoughts or, or, uh, or final, uh, considerations for us, uh, when it comes to suffering and, and maybe a theology of suffering? Um, yeah, well, let me say this, we, uh, as I've been going through this and writing a lot about suffering at the very end of last year, my father died very suddenly and unexpectedly. And, um, again, I said I had lived a really good and suffering free life. And so, uh, kind of felt like a one, two punch in some ways and, uh, just introduced a whole new level of suffering, the suffering of grief, um, losing someone you love. So, yeah, 2019 was a, a sorrowful year in a lot of ways. It took a lot out of us, but uh, God has been very good to us. And um, I think he has uh, used all this in many ways to uh, draw us closer together as a family and more and more conform us to his image. So um, maybe I've just learned that we don't need to fear suffering as mm-hmm. if it'll be useless, as if God won't accomplish anything through it. Um, I don't think God wastes our suffering anyways. He was doing something good through it. Wow. So in you walking through that valley of your father's death, was there one way in particular that your uh, church body that you're a part of ministered to you that was helpful? You know, one thing occurred to me through all of that, and uh, my father died down in Dalton, Georgia. And so all the funeral and everything was held down there a thousand miles from my home and my church. So Mm. 
Uh, my church wasn't able to participate as much as my parents' church and sisters' churches were. Um, but I think one thing that really stood out to me was the importance of uh, physical, tangible manifestations of love, by which I mean there's something about a card that is far more powerful than a text message. And it's great to send a text message and say, I'm praying for you and all that. But there's still something about a card, something about flowers, something about a meal that brings some tangible evidence of your love or of your thought or of your care or your concern. So I really took away from that, that uh, I just don't think electronic communications is a good stand in. Mm. Um, you know, obviously as much as we want, we want to be face to face and uh, pastor of our church. He's also my closest friend. When I called him and said, dad died, he's like, I'm in my car. I'm coming over right now. And sure mm. enough, he did. And that was, you know, he got to be here physically and that was, a huge blessing so we could pray with the family. Um, many others were not capable of doing that, I understand. But I just think a card, uh, uh, some physical, tangible thing is so, so important when our default seems to be uh, mostly just shooting a text or an email. Right. Yeah, this this digital age that we live in certainly has its limitations with all the convenience that comes along. Uh, yep. Ministering. uh uh, really seems to take a hit uh, when it comes to uh, electronic communication. Yep. So, Tim, you have a new project uh, that is um, very soon to be released, and it's mm -hmm. uh, called Epic. Do you mind telling us about that? Yeah, so a few years ago, I had this idea that it would be a neat way of telling church history to go around the world and look for historical objects and then use each one of those objects to tell a story beyond itself. Um, I was fortunate enough to have the opportunity to actually be able to do that. And so over the course of about 18 months, I guess, something like that, got to travel to 24 countries, I think we touched on. Um, got to eat McDonald's in 21 of them. And... Uh, <laughs> Also got to go to a lot of museums and churches, speak with a lot of people, and find some really amazing objects. And so all of that got turned into a book and then also a DVD series, a documentary series, both titled Epic, and they released in March or April. Great. So will the DVD series be uh, akin to a study series for small groups, or is it more for no. personal consumption? Yeah, it's more for that. So the the book and DVD go together. And I suppose if you were to break it down, the DVD would be a little bit more about the search and the book would be a little bit more about what we found. And mm. so the DVD shows the travel. It shows us all over the world and all these different contexts and cultures and uh, in lots of museums and just looking at objects. But then the book actually narrows it to 33 objects that I found um, particularly helpful and important. Right. So I will link to uh, the trailer for that uh, in the show notes of this episode. And uh, I was able to see that at G3 and uh, I'm really looking forward to this project. Um, yeah, what, what was something that uh, was a highlight from this project, from putting all this together? Yeah, man, going around the world was incredible. And um, I think the big takeaway about all that was I think there is benefit in seeing historical objects for one thing. I really enjoyed those tangible links between the past and the present. And so there's something about sitting at George Mueller's desk and reading George Mueller's Bible and seeing his journals, which he wrote down the, the children, the children's names as they would come into his orphanage and, um, 
writing about whether they believed or not as they were released from the orphanage as they grew up and such or something about seeing those things that was so powerful at the end of it all though the big takeaway was meeting god's people today that history is is amazing and uh, helpful and so many other things but god's still at work in the world today and that there's this historical link um, to the church of today all around the world. So meeting Christians in all those countries was incredibly powerful. So you were encouraged then by the, the state of God's work around the world. Yeah, absolutely. Occasionally discouraged as well. There's a lot of great things that have been lost or a lot of great buildings that were built and have now fallen into decay or ministries that were started that are now awful. Um, have really revoked the truth, but there are many others that were started long ago and carry on and um, lots of buildings where the tr- the truth is still being preached and so on. So yeah, there's a lot of encouragement. That's fantastic. So uh, let me ask this. So you, you had a lot of McDonald's from around the world. Does mm-hmm. one country do it better than anywhere else? Yeah, it's so the fries are the same everywhere as far as I could tell. Um, and there's certain things, you know, but I would say India maybe does it the worst with their Maharaja Mac, okay. uh, which was pretty, pretty, well, maybe Israel was even worse. Uh, it has <laughs> something called the Mega Mick America Burger, which was horrific. Um, the best I had was in Ecuador, and I can't remember the name of it, but it was a breakfast sandwich, and it was phenomenal. So, okay. yeah, you know, so, it has its, its pluses and minuses all over. That's something to look forward to. You, there's your follow-up project is uh, yeah. charting, charting McDonald's around the world. Yep, it could uh, be. You could do an infographic on that. Yeah. <laughs> I could, yeah. It'd be like supersize me, but the Christian version or something. <laughs> That's right. So one more question about Epic. Was there something that maybe caught you by surprise, uh, something that you totally did not expect uh, in going into this project? I think one of the neatest moments was going down to the south of India where Amy Carmichael served and she had uh, created a ministry there. And um, we got to go in and, and see it, uh, Donovan Fellowship it's called, and it's still going strong and um, I think still doing well, still preaching the gospel there. But I uh, got to meet a woman who works there who was actually given her name by uh, Amy Carmichael when uh, she was young. She was brought to the orphanage. Amy took her in her arms, prayed for her and gave her the name Memala, which means basically beautiful flower. And uh, here she was all these years later, uh, serving now in that ministry. She had dedicated her life to it. Mm-hmm. And man, wasn't that a neat little link between today and this hero of uh, Christian history. And then going to Ireland and finding Amy Carmichael's Bible, which she had read very extensively and annotated very extensively as well, was uh, a neat link as well. Mm. Was there any place in uh, North America that you uh, made a stop at? Yeah, there are several. So in uh, North America, we started up in uh, the Boston area and uh, sort of seeing the pilgrim sites and then went out and did some Whitfield and Edwards stuff. Um, went down to California and um, saw some not so good stuff. There's a history of Pentecostalism began there mm-hmm. in uh, 1906. And then uh, also went to uh, Tulsa to see um, the to, to do some research on the beginnings of the prosperity gospel. Mm, mm. And then to Kansas City to visit the Spurgeon Library. So we went uh, pretty far and wide there. Fantastic. Great. Well, Tim, is there anything else that you're working on? It's in the pipeline. Any projects that will be coming up after Epic? 
Yeah, the next big project is uh, kicking off in June, and uh, Tim Kazee and I, Tim has uh, shot several films around the world and written a couple books. He and I are starting another travel project, and in this one, we hope to visit 12 different countries, at least 12 different countries, and to find local churches there that are theologically sound, mm. but that are worshiping in a way that's been informed by their local cultural context. And so hopefully churches where they're not just singing translated English hymns set to the normal English tunes, but let's say churches where they've written their own worship in their own language, in their own musical style, and so on. So where there's been that that development um, and where maybe they worship in slightly different ways because that's how it's done in their culture. So um, hoping to circle the world and just show, try and let people know that any given Sunday when you stand up and Somewhere in mid-America, you rise to worship already for the last 18 hours or 14 hours, whatever it is. People around the world have already been joining together to worship. And when you're done, people to the west of you will still be rising to worship. And on this Mm -hmm. one day, there's this chorus of praise that goes out all around the earth. So we're trying to capture some of that. Wow, that is fantastic. That's fantastic. I hope so, yeah. I hope it'll be really exciting and really informative and just really show us what God is doing just on any normal little Sunday. Well, I really look forward to that. Well, Tim, thank you so much for your time. Uh, I really appreciate uh, all that you do and uh, really uh, am am thankful for uh, your work. And uh, I will, again, like I said, be pointing folks uh, to your blog and to these articles and uh, also to the uh, trailer for Epic. All right. Thank you. Absolutely. Well, thank you once again for listening to Reclamation Worship. Many thanks to Tim for coming on the show and uh, sharing with us about his ministry. Really thankful for the conversation on corporate worship, suffering in worship, and this new project that's in the works, Epic. I will be linking to all of these things we discussed in the show notes at reclamationworship.com. So if you've not visited the site yet, please do so and drop me a line. There's a place uh, where you can contact me at reclamationworship.com. If you have not already done so, please head over to iTunes and subscribe, leave a rating and a review. That helps get the word out. You can also help get the word out by sharing this with your family, friends, neighbors, and even the, the person at the checkout counter at the grocery store. However you can get the word out about Reclamation Worship, I would greatly appreciate it. All right, we are on Instagram, at Reclamation Worship. We are on Facebook, at Reclamation Worship, and Twitter, at Reclamation HQ. Until next time, solely Deo Gloria.